You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Wow, that's a beautiful thought. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. Um, Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning, where we're going to learn a lot more about what we just sang about. Uh, First of all, I just want to say what an awesome job the youth uh, team did presenting the prayer focus a little while ago. And I want to encourage you to be a part of this trip. In fact, I'm going to challenge you. Allison and I usually give $100. This year, I'm not going to look at her when I say this. We're going to give 10000 No, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> just kidding, Allison. It's one of those, you've got cancer, just kidding. But it is bad, you know. Um, uh, we're going to give $200. Let's get this done. Let's get this done. These guys, this is worthy of our support. Double what you were thinking about. The Lord is going to take care of you. You ever known anybody to say, oh, I gave all that money to the Lord and my life is just, oh, I just, it's rude. No, no. Give with a glad and generous heart and let's get this done quickly. Well, last Sunday I said, hang on. It was really full. It's really full this morning, but it was really, really full last week. And I said, hang on to the fall. We can't hang on to the fall. The elders have decided. We decided Wednesday night. It was really not debate about should we. It was just debate about how we're going to do this. We're going to two services, March 17th. Would have been nice to do it March 3rd, but it's just going to take a little time. Some of you in children's ministry, you're just now hearing about this. A lot of you are just now hearing about this. Others of you have known. We've tried to... Get it started. The elders and the deacons knew, and and uh, the home group leaders. I believe I, I I mentioned to you yesterday, and when I sent around information to them. But um, look, can you imagine how many people might drive up to our parking lot and say, "Oh, I think I'll just keep on driving down the road." Look, two services, it's difficult in some ways. Other ways, not so much so, but it's difficult in some ways. But but imagine if we had said, um, we just can't take anybody else. There's just no room for anybody else at Grace Community Church. Imagine if we had said that the week before you came, you first attended. It is not our desire, nor is it our intention to grow as large as we can grow. We've got a lot of property here, but we're not going to keep growing. We want to be planted. We want to be replicating what's going on at Grace Community Churches and other places. By the leadership of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus Christ's church. It's not our church. It's Jesus' church. He's the head of our church. We, we remember this often in our elders' meetings. Jesus, this is your church. Guide us as we discuss the business of the church. So we're going to be going to two services. On March 17th, they'll be at 9 and 1045. Be an hour, 20-minute service. Just 
slightly shortened from what we have now, and 25 minutes space in between. Look, if you need to grieve, do it this week. <laughs> if you're going to mourn, do it this week. Because starting next Sunday, we're going to be excited about what God is doing in this place. We're going to be excited. And, and historically, you should know that our numbers begin to go down after the last Sunday in January. And they're slightly down today, not, not considerably so. But the trends here are definitely up. And so, um, if you are, like I say, if it's difficult for you, deal with it. But then let's, let's all together just praise God for what he's doing. And, 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 and continue this Christ-centered, gospel-focused ministry that the Lord has blessed us with every single one of us. You know, one of the things I thought about with the youth up here and the, and the large worship team that we had this morning, and people who are serving back here and 22 children's workers in the back every Sunday. And by the way, that's one of the reasons the ratios are getting really high there. They're not as safe as they used to be. We've got to find ways to make... Um, Space. So that's one of the things that we'll be doing um, or, or accomplishing on Sunday morning. But, but there's, there's a place for everybody. Ricky Mill, this past Wednesday night, there was a panel, small panel up here for Grace Matters. Uh, I want to encourage you when you hear about Grace Matters in the future, you can't imagine how good these things are, the information that you receive. We had a panel up here. Uh, several months ago that talked about worship that was a stellar group of individuals including our own David Calvert and Ram Whitley um, and, and then also a couple of other guys uh, but please come and, and, and go to the podcast and, and, and hear uh, what was said on this past Wednesday night about how God Establishes church. And Ricky Mill, who had a huge role in the early days of the church, said, God, when God is going to build a church, he gathers a group of people who are gifted in different ways. He gets the giftedness of all of these people together and it forms a body. And that happens. Have you ever thought about how most small towns, big cities, have just the right amount of doctors, just the right amount of planters? It's just funny how. Life just sort of works out. But the church ought to be a great and beautiful picture of the body of Christ. A lot of people, a lot of you are involved in significant ministry here. And if you're not, and I'm talking to students as well as adults, if you are not involved in significant ministry, let me challenge you to get there. Because God has called us to, together and we need you serving in the way that you are. So, lest I can take the entire service talking about this, I better move on. You'll hear more about it as we go. A lot of questions um, that will be answered along the way in these next several weeks. But first, at the beginning of the message, let me ask you an important question. What is your favorite holiday of the year? Now, since, I'm sorry to say this, Alan and Patsy, Meadows, since state fair cannot be considered uh, a holiday, not even a state holiday, it ought to be. 
national holiday. I'm going to guess that some of you are going to say Christmas or Easter. Particularly believers are going to say Christmas or Easter. I love the Christmas season. I do. And I love just all the pageantry of it. But more and more my heart is drawn to the, to, to the, to, to the meaning of the incarnation. The fact that God became flesh. God took on. The word became flesh. God became human. Jesus Christ became one of us. Is Christmas or Easter more meaningful to one of you? I'm guessing that for a lot of people, Easter is going to hold a little bit higher priority in their thinking. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting that at the end of this service, as we gather at this table, we're going to remember neither the incarnation nor the resurrection. We're going to remember the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Our focus before the supper, though, is Jesus' incarnation and how everything changed when the Word became flesh. What does that mean, anyway? The Word became flesh. We'll get some indication from our text, John 1, 14 to 18, which may describe the incarnation as well as any place in Scripture. But it's also true that the rest of Scripture helps to fill in and to support and to build on to this great message of the truth that our text presents. Speaking of the text, let's get to it. For those of you who are just getting to grace, we are just getting to the Gospel of John. So you have come at a good time. Um, the Gospel of John may provide as clear and important a portrait of the person of Jesus as you find anywhere in Scripture, all of Scripture is inspired. Every single bit is important. But there are places that you go to <laughs> when you're looking to trying to understand a particular aspect of God's character, God's person, God's ways. And the Gospel of John, John points to Jesus in a way that hardly any other place does. The title of today's message is the same as the title for the entire series. The Word Became Flesh. Today is the third and final week in a series of sermons in the prologue to John's gospel found in the first 18 verses of the book. Although our focus is on verses 14 to 18 in chapter 1, uh, we will read, as we did the last two weeks, the entire prologue and let the truth of God's word wash over you as we read. It's our custom to stand when the scripture is read, so if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, even as we read and, and, <clears throat> and know that there's much about this text that we we don't understand. We recognize its weightiness and its, its power. And so, Father, as we hear from you today, we pray that you would give us eager hearts to receive and ready minds to, to engage and embrace the truth found in your word. And may the living word Jesus Christ, be lifted up and exalted in our midst. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. I always think after I've, I've prayed, I usually say be seated, but I almost went to the text. I did a wedding one time where I forgot to tell people to be seated after the prayer. And they were going down from the back forward, you know, because they were saying, sit down, sit down. So if I ever do forget it, just sit down, if you will. <laughs> and tell the people on the front two rows that they can sit down, too. As it has been for the first two weeks of our study, today is going to be more information than application, but that's okay. This is the way Scripture is designed. And... Sometimes you need this solid foundation before you get going. I've said this before. I'll say it again many times because I'm an old man for starters, but it's just the way of nature. But look, when I read history, it's a little troublesome if, if it's riveting from the beginning because almost all really good history has got some foundation that it has to lay, maybe as much as 100 pages before it starts getting interesting because you just have to know the facts before you can move forward. And, and the way that the New Testament epistles are designed, often you have verbs that are mostly indicative, the indicative mood. That means that, that, that the writer is indicating something about God's character, about the truth that he wants you to know. Indicative verbs. Then towards the end, they're, they're mostly imperative verbs. Those are action verbs, command verbs. This is how you should 
live your life based on the information that you've been given. So never say, man, I surely didn't get much out of that. Because if it's information that God is giving us, then it's important that we understand it fully before we begin to move forward. <clears throat> so, if we do not understand, and, and listen, you, you understand this, I know you do. If, if we do not understand who Jesus is, then we're not going to, we're going to get almost everything about the Bible wrong. Almost every, nothing else really matters if we don't understand who Jesus is. So, we approach these last five verses of the prologue to John's gospel with deep gratitude for who God is and how he has made himself known to us and with great anticipation. The first phrase of John 1, 14 is remarkable in its brevity and breathtaking in its scope. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've already established that the word in John 1, in his prologue, John is talking about Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> it was established early on, and now he's giving more explanation to who the word is. We define the Trinity this way. Separate persons, same nature. Three persons, one nature. But then Jesus is one person, two natures. Both a divine nature and a human nature. And believe me, that is the simple version. As J.I. Packer has said, here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Even though the heresies of docetism and Gnosticism were almost a century away from their full-blown form where people would say that everything about the material world is, is, is wrong, it's doomed, it was a mistake to begin with, and our only goal in life is to escape this material and be spiritual in mind, and then one day we'll be freed from these bonds. Even though <clears throat> that was a, a, a century away almost from being full-blown, the gospel of John was greatly used when it came into full existence to say, and, and do you think God understood that when he led John <clears throat> to write his writings, both his gospel and his letters? Of course he did. But even in the late first century, you've got people who are toying with the idea that, that, that Jesus didn't really come in human form. He just appeared to be human. Because how can you be divine and human at the same time? It looked like he had a body, but really it was just a spirit. It was a convenient heresy, especially those who thought that it's incongruous for a divine being to inhabit a despicable and limited human body. But the Apostle John leaves no room for any doubt that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. John used somewhat of a base term for the human body. He didn't say the word became a man 
Or he didn't say that the word took a body. No, he said very plainly, the word became flesh. Now this term in no way implies that Jesus was sinful or that he became sinful. Uh, he, he was a sinful person in, at any point in his, his life. Next Sunday, a portion of the sermon time is going to include a panel of elders who will be discussing the significance of the Jewish, Jewish use of the, of the word word in John chapter 1 and also talk about the Trinity. Man, I've been wrestling with this doctrine of the Trinity this week. Been thinking of, I have read some phenomenal stuff, but some stuff that I just want to chew on it a little bit more and, and interact with other believers and theologians before I can say, you know, I, I want to share with you what I've been blessed with uh, this past week thinking about the Trinity. But nothing that anyone can ever say in any setting will ever be more profound than this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Although we need time catch our breath, the truth rolls on. Not only did the Word, who was with God and was God, become a human born the way that all humans are born, though conceived as no other human being has ever been conceived. Not only was Jesus born, but we are told that the, that the Word dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt is literally... It means literally that Jesus pitched his tent among us. Which, of course, causes one to think of the Old Testament tent, the tabernacle. That's why you hear theologians translate the phrase, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the idea that wherever that tabernacle is, the presence of God is there. And wherever Jesus was, God was with us. Emmanuel. God with us. What are the implications? Even though God had appeared on earth, he never dwelled in one place until the tabernacle was constructed, after which he came in glory to be amongst his people. Now look, lest you say, wait a minute. Of course, we all know that God is om omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. But the tabernacle allowed a holy God to dwell with sinful people according to his standards. And, and, and the way he communicated that to sinful men is, there's going to be a curtain, and behind that curtain, nobody can go. Except for one person. Once a year. Although the literal curtain at, at the Jerusalem temple was, was not torn in half until after Jesus' death or at Jesus' death on the cross, God was already revealing himself in a very powerful, glorious way when Jesus was born. So, the tabernacle was mobile, of course, and the Lord eventually revealed that he would move to a more permanent place at the temple in Jerusalem. Or in the temple at Jerusalem. But the sin of the people caused God to say, No more, your sins have separated you from me. 
And I'm tearing this thing down. I'm tearing this building down. He would destroy the temple. Just as he had said that he would do if the people didn't stay faithful to it. The glory of God departed from the nation of Israel. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Now in Jesus, the glory of God has come in full splendor, just like the Shekinah glory enveloped both the tabernacle and the temple at times. Remember John, when we Isaiah, I mean, when we were in Isaiah 6, and, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. John 12 is going to tell us that it was Jesus who Isaiah saw when the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Isaiah couldn't look and he just said, oh, woe is me. I'm a sinful man living upon sin, living in the, lip, uh, the, the, the midst of sinful people. There are lips in there that get burned. And I, so I was combining in sentence at the same time. So, God comes in all his glory in Jesus. Look at how he says it. John says it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace. So, as we've already stated, John makes no apologies for his claim that Jesus is God. I've been working with 10 plus sources for our study in John. So you can only imagine what I leave out on Sunday mornings. One outstanding resource is the New International Commentary, New Testament, written by Leon Morris, who you just saw on the screen. You're going to see again in just a second. Wouldn't you know that Morris was an Aussie? And so I was telling Allison, I really enjoyed Leon Morris. He, and she said, I know, I know, he, he's an Aussie, in fact. New South Wales, Aussie, um, who taught at Trinity for a long time, died, I think, in 2006. Morris had this to say about the glory of Christ, which not only describes the incarnation of Christ, but also points to Jesus' life, life, purpose, and impact on the world. Here's what Morris said, quote, John holds, it is true, that the miracle showed the glory of Christ, but in a deeper sense... It is the cross of shame that manifests the true glory. Think of it. When Jesus is saying, now will the Son be glorified. Now, Father, glorify your Son. I have glorified and I will glorify. And that's right, isn't it? Jesus was born to die. For this reason, I came into the world. To absorb God's righteous wrath that must be poured out, not only on sin, but on sinners. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 puts it all in one place. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. By the way, in home group this week, a lot of application from this text in the, in the verses before it. Who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Form of God, form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it goes on in the next few verses to say, and so one day, this Jesus is going to be magnified to the place that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In God the Father's plan, grace and truth were found in one package. You've heard that grace, uh, you've heard grace defined as unmerited favor. Favor we don't deserve. That's true. We could, though, go so far as to say this is God's kindness and his steadfast love to those who absolutely deserve condemnation. It's not just, oh, you know, people do things for you and you say, oh, that was so nice. Why did you do that? That's just, a, it's not that kind of grace that God has given us. It's the kind that we are headed for the cliff and we know I've brought this on myself. I, I, it's my fault. I deserve this. And he snatches us and rescues us and then gives us Everything we could have ever dreamed of. Grace came in tandem with God's truth. Wrapped in swaddling clothes. When God's wrath was exhausted on Jesus. His blood became a propitiation for our sins. In other words, his blood was, was the satisfactory sacrifice. God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. His blood for our blood. Instead of pouring his wrath on us, he poured it out on Jesus. And our only hope of avoiding God's wrath is to hide in the cross, behind the cross of Jesus Christ. According to Romans 3, that enabled God to be both just in condemning sin and yet the justifier of the one who believes. Believes? That's what John's telling us. Over and over and over, he's saying, believe into, pistuo ace, throw yourself fully, completely on Jesus Christ. We cannot know truth unless God reveals it to us. But in John 1.14, the revelation of the truth that we understand <clears throat> leads to our just condemnation is accompanied with God's full expression of grace in Jesus. In verse 15, we have yet another reminder that although Jesus was born after John the Baptist and though Jesus began his ministry after John's ministry, nonetheless, he came before Jesus. He existed before Jesus because he's always existed. <clears throat> Let's think about that for a while. Let's just think about the fact that God never had a beginning. And then we'll go directly from here to a mental health facility because we'll need it if we think about it too long. God never had a beginning. Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. He's always existed. Only by faith can we understand and accept this truth. And isn't it interesting? 
Is, is it in, interesting to you? It is to me that the word faith is never used in John's gospel. It's not in the Greek. It's uh, in the NIV in one verse, I think 1243. I've got it down here, 1242. The word faith is supplied, but it's not in the Greek. And yet the word believe is used 98 times. Maybe his emphasis, maybe the reason is because John's emphasis was on an active response to Jesus. When we see his glory, glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Our response should be believe. How can we believe? Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's the grace of God that leads us to believe. It's a grace of God that saves us. It's proper to say that Christ is the source of all our blessings. This phrase, grace upon grace, is an unusual expression. It literally means grace instead of grace or grace in the place of grace. Think about that. Grace instead of grace. Once again, uh, we're blessed by the man from down under, Leon Morris, who said this. This probably means that as one piece of divine grace recedes, it is replaced by another. God's grace is continuous and is never exhausted. Grace knows no interruption and no limit. But grace is always an adventure. No one can say where grace will lead, what blessing it will bring, or what challenge it will make. Grace means an ever-deepening experience of the presence and blessing of God. If you live your life as you are told in our land to do, expecting that you deserve everything known under the sun, and that you deserve to be happy, and that that's how you ought to pursue, you're not going to appreciate grace. You're just going to be bitter all the time. Why do I have to have this trouble? Why do I, why is this? Why is that? Why didn't it ever happen to somebody else? You're going to be jealous and petty. Grace delivers us from all of that. Look, some of you are in incredible pain, and I've never endured pain like that, and so my heart goes out to you. I cannot... Imagine what it would be like to have that, that chronic, unrelenting pain and discomfort. The grace of God is constantly being replenished. It's an active blessing in your life. So thank you, Mr. Morris. These words are a good reminder for all, but especially to those of you who find yourself in a dark place. God's grace will light your way because Jesus is light and life. God's grace is revealed in Jesus. And if you believe in him, you are united with Christ. He is with you in your dark place. And no place could be darker than where he was when the glory of God was at its brightest as Jesus bore your sins on the cross.
You'll notice in verse 17 that even though the law came through Moses, God was its source. There may be a broader meaning to John's word that simply that God gave the law in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but we can know at the very least that it means that much. And we know that the law cannot give life, but can only point people to life who keep it perfectly, who obey the law perfectly, which is none of us, right? We are incapable, of course, of perfect obedience because of the sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. We cannot help but sin. It is part of who we are. Thus, the law cannot give life. It can only condemn. Now, the law pointed to Jesus, who was the solution to our sin problem. But the law in and of itself, if that's all you're basing your relationship with God on, if I can just be good enough, you lose. You fail. You will not make it. You will be condemned, and the law will condemn you. In Jesus, grace comes to us without injury to the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Who is the Father? Anyway, that's a question his disciples said. Lord, show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. Jesus said, do you not understand? Chapter 14. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God, just like the Father is God. Yet I come to do His will, separate, yet one. We would have never fully known the Father, and still don't, but we would have not known Him nearly as well as we do, since no one has ever seen God. But Jesus, who is God, has made Him known. Now, I understand this was a question last week, and it's a good question. I love for people to think, at, at this level, wait a minute. God showed up in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, face-to-face kind of stuff. Well, understand that there were theophanies, Christophanies, appearances that God and Jesus made on the earth, uh, but not with the full glory. In fact, we're told that God spoke with Moses face-to-face, and then Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And he says, I can't show it. All to you or else you would die. You couldn't. You can't handle my glory kind of a thing. <clears throat> and so he said, but I will put you in a safe place and I'll pass by and you'll see my back. You'll see a portion of me, but you can't see all of me. You remember some of those uh, appearances of God in various forms, such as a smoking fire pot and flaming torch to Uh, Abraham in Genesis 15 or the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3. Although, interestingly, you may have never even seen this, but the angel of the Lord appeared in the midst of the burning bush. So it's not like Moses was just talking to a bush. The angel of the Lord was there, I think. In fact, John 8 is going to tell us who it is. It was Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. We'll get to all of that. When we get to it, to have seen God's full glory would have been too much for anyone to experience and live. Make no mistake, though, we have seen God's glory in Jesus. If God's glory, if God's glory 
is most clearly revealed in Jesus' suffering on the cross. Is it any surprise that we who were called to live cross-centered lives, is it a surprise that we should suffer according to God's will? As you read through the New Testament this year, and I am so pleased with how many of you are reading through the Bible this year. Don't give up. You're getting ready to hit the hard stretch. And late Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers. Some of those places can be pretty tough. Hang in there. You'll, it'll be worth it. But when you get to the New Testament, notice how frequently suffering and glory are paired. You won't go far before you find both words. Suffering, maybe it starts. Then glory, you'll see glory not too far away. There's a connection that we rarely want to make, but God establishes very clearly in, in, in his word, and we see it played out in our lives. If the prologue to John's gospel has taught us anything, it is that God's design for our lives in Christ is wonderful. It's wonderful. That is so even when we suffer. So as we head to the table where we will think about the suffering of Christ, hear these words from Irenaeus, the second century theologian that we thought about last week and heard about last week. Let these words from Irenaeus encourage your heart. It is not you that shapes God. It is God who shapes you. If then you are the work of God, await the hand of the artist who does all things in due season. Offer him your heart, soft and malleable, and keep the form in which the artist has fashioned you. Retain your moisture, lest you harden and lose the imprint of his finger. Will it hurt your feelings if I read that again? I might be worth it. It is not you that shapes God. It is God who shapes you. If then you are the work of God, await the hand of the artist who does all things in due season. Offer him your heart soft and malleable so that he can fashion you. And keep the form in which the artist has fashioned you. Retain your moisture, lest you harden and lose the imprint of his fingers. Let's pray. Well, Father... We confess that there are many times that life doesn't make sense. And rather than telling us these three weeks how to make sense of life, you have told us about Jesus. And those of us who believe, and Lord, I know that there are many here who do, maybe some who don't. I pray that you would call them to believe this morning. 
But for those of us who believe, we recognize the importance of Jesus, but sometimes we lose sight because we're so distracted by everything going on around us. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, I pray that you would help our hearts, our eyes, our minds, all our beings to refocus to see Jesus lifted up on a cross before our eyes and understand and receive this great love, this great sacrifice that Jesus made for us once and for all, after which he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God where he ever makes intercession for so, Lord, this day, as you call us to the table, draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. ask the um, elders and deacons to come forward who will be serving and worship team will come also, if you will, and take your place. And here's one of the uh, adjustments that we have made as a result of the numbers, we actually get a lot more people in here by having three sections instead of four. Once we go to two services, we'll go back to four sessions, four sections, and uh, it, it makes it more comfortable to come forward. Today, we're going to pass the next two months where we would typically come forward to receive. On the first Sunday, we'll be passing, uh, so you'll remain in your seats. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul was talking to the people who had followed the Lord's instruction to observe the Lord's death at the table, at his supper. But they had made a mockery of the body of Christ. Both they were getting drunk in the... In, in the uh, love feast that they used to have and they were withholding from the poor buying this idea that God blesses the rich and he's cursed the poor. He has blessed the rich so you can tell how close a person is to God by how much they have, how well they do, how gifted they are, whatever you want. We could go in a lot of different ways with that. And he said because of that some are sick and some have already died. That's how seriously he takes this table. But do not think, oh, I, 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 I've got this one sin that I struggle with over and over, and so I better not take, partake when the communion comes up. Look, this is our hope. This is the hope for sin. The fact that Jesus died for our sins, we could never be good enough to be there. If you have sin in your life that is unconfessed, then I'm going to give you opportunity in just a moment to confess to the Lord that sin. And then please partake when it comes. These words from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Just, just think. Think of everything that is in there. On the night when he was betrayed. Some of you 
are likely in a dark place because you've been betrayed. You've been hurt deeply. You have a close communion with Jesus Christ who knows what that feels like. He enters your darkness and brings light and grace along with the truth that we are sinners. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. <clears throat> and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So we are already saying. When we partake of this table. We believe that Jesus not only died. But that he rose again. And that he is coming again. In power. And the whole world will see his glory. In a way never before. But when we come to this table. We see his glory. Like very few people do. Let's ready our hearts. If you are a believer, if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> you are invited to partake as the elements are passed. First the bread, and then we will partake. Hold on to it until we partake together. And, and the bread is gluten-free, by the way. <clears throat> and then we will pass the juice, and we will partake together. Let's take just a few moments. If there is sin that needs to be confessed, please do so. Ask God... <clears throat> To reveal himself as he has done in his word at this table. Lord, let us see your glory. Would you pray? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.